Blue, 42. Blue, 42. Omaha. Omaha. Set, hut. Well, Paul, that really looked like it's a first down for Spooner. All right, first down. Huddle up, huddle up. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast. This is Dan hosting again, and we are on location today at Arizona Sports Medicine Center in Mesa, Arizona. I am joined today by Dr. Chuck Peterson and Becca Hibbert. Hello. Hello. Uh, Becca, why don't you take some time to introduce our wonderful guest? I would love to. So we are very lucky to have Dr. Peterson back for the huddle in 2023, which just as a reminder, it does take place March 10th and 11th. But for those of you who may have not been at the huddle in 2022 or have not met Dr. Peterson yet, let me just do a little bit of an intro. He is a sports medicine physician at ASMC. He actually started ASMC with Dr. Wozlewski and Friedberg in 2004. He went to medical school at Northwestern, residency at Mayo, and did his sports medicine fellowship at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He also works with just a few teams that you may have heard of. He works with the Diamondbacks, the Cardinals. He helps the Cubs here in spring training and the U.S. ski team, which maybe at some point he'll tell us all about the training he just recently did there. And he's also been the team physician for Mountain View High School, which is a high school here in the Phoenix Valley area for 20 years, which is awesome. He has been married for 30 years, has five kids and two grandkids. So we are very lucky to have him on the podcast today. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I, I'm 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 blessed that we have this time to be able to to spend together. Because if I think back to Huddle 2022, the talks that you gave were phenomenal. And what I very much appreciate is I I was sitting next to you. I think I think maybe Fish was sitting in between us, but the detailed notes that you took on every speaker and the way that you integrated seamlessly without any cueing from our huddle planning community, what everybody else had spoken to throughout the entire conference, which is a, just a testament to the expertise that you provide here in the Valley for, for patients and what I hope all of those who will attend the huddle in 2023 will want to come and hear you speak at the highest level, which is, uh, so thank you for that. I appreciate that. Well, you're too kind. Thank you. And I, for me, it was an honor to be there. And I could not believe the, the caliber of speakers I was sitting next to. That was sort of, I don't know. It was pretty cool. It you was know, amazing. Next to people such as Dr. Myers and et cetera. I mean, that, that was pretty amazing. It was. Yeah, and was we've got a great, great lineup coming up in, in in March of 2023. So for those of you who have not yet signed up, please do. So the topic of today's of, of today's pod really is going to be looking at interesting patients that going on the theme with the, the huddle that involve collaboration. So Dr. Peterson, why don't you kind of want to share some of those interesting cases that you've been working on in the sports med realm over the, you know, the last few weeks, months that have really spoken to that, that amount of collaboration and w the results that you've seen. Sure. Sounds great. There's, there, there are a few that, uh, that come to mind with that. Um, oftentimes, you know, in, in the field of sports medicine, there's the there's the surgical side. My partner's Dr. Wazowski, Dr. Friedberg, Dr. Ferry, Dr. Lyles. Then there's subspecialists, Dr. Mitchell with foot and ankle, um, Dr. Hunt with hand, et cetera. So we've got that surgical side, then the what people call the non-operative, even though we do some 
minimally invasive procedures side of it. So they're, they're different sides, but there's a lot of overlap. So we, we often share patients and send back and forth. So as an example, if I, if I see somebody who has an ACL tear, I'm going to tee them up and send them to my surgical partners and they're going to fix them. If I see somebody who doesn't need surgery, I keep them. And then there's the other direction. If, if my partner sees somebody that has something that they feel could be managed more appropriately without an operation, they send them my way. So that's, that's a bit of what I was, I was going to mention. And so the first example I had was, was this is, I just saw her back not too long ago. Uh, and she's doing really well, but she's a professional volleyball player that was playing overseas in Germany. And she originally saw Dr. Wazowski. And he gave her some of the different options as far as surgical treatment for this, for this um, chronic problem with, with her knee, with patellar tendinopathy and this issue. And, and, um, and he gave her the various options, said we could do open treatment or you could consider less invasive procedures that could get you back a little more quickly uh, with much less, more, uh, much less of a, a recovery and less chance of, of difficulties with it. Um, and potentially the same results. So he sent her over to talk about it, and we discussed it, and she decided she wanted to do it. And so what I ended up doing was percutaneous tenotomy, also known as 10X. It's a minimally invasive procedure that uses a motorized needle to perform phacoemulsification, the same type of procedures that, that's done for uh, cataract surgery. But now it's, it's been around for about 10 years, and I've probably done over 1,000 cases of these. But I, I did that, and I was able to debride and remove the damaged tenopathy of that chronic patella tendon in this jumping athlete, but then also recontour where she had some little spurs, little enthesophytes to the distal patella. So I could recontour it and do all of this ultrasound guided through a two millimeter poke, no sutures, no incision. Uh, and then following that, to try to optimize things, we, we also did extracorporeal shockwave therapy to try to bring additional blood flow and try to help with healing and pain reduction. And the upshot of it is that she's done very well and she's back in Europe playing again and, and, um, and very excited with how she's been able to progress and, and try to get through this problem. That's, that's a fan fantastic example of collaboration. Can you just share a little bit about, because she was working overseas, yep. that communication back to the team of, of helping manage that you know, on quote-unquote location because you're managing her from across, uh, across the world. Yeah, and so sometimes we'll... Um, in this particular case, they had some different forms and medical release papers and says she's reached her maximum medical improvement. She's ready to return to play. So we'll sign that for the teams and just email it off. So it was as simple as that in this case. Well, and I think the other thing that's so important for what I want our listeners to hear, it, it, it's kind of what you talked about with how your practice is set up with your surgeons and your sports medicine providers, not saying that your surgeons aren't sports medicine providers, but they're looking at a case to say, what's the best solution and That's what right. are the options? Not just saying, I'm a surgeon, I'm going to send you under the operating table. Yep. They're saying, wait, what are all of our options? And I think that's a very in, uh, unique working dynamic of, of different offices that I've worked with here in the Valley that's unique with ASMC is that's the nature that you guys operate every single day. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's one reason why I love this. You know, sometimes if you'll see this, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. I feel like we have a whole toolbox here, you know, where, where we can interchangeably work together and go back and forth. And there'll be times I'll send a patient to my partner, they'll send them back and then we send them back again. And, I, and it's not because we're trying to 
dodge the bullet or avoid treatment. It's because we're trying to do what's truly the best for the patient and the individual. And sometimes that morphs and changes and, and, and we have to adjust and accommodate and really do our very best all together and truly collaborate. And, and sometimes that'll be within the practice and other times it's outside of the practice. So there are certainly times where we'll do that. And I, I can give an example of that. You know, I had a, a professional um, soccer player that was sent by a physical therapist from um, way out on east side, but he's from out of state, from a professional team in another state. And, um, and he was having some troubles and they hadn't quite figured out diagnostically what was wrong. So this young athlete was really struggling. He, he could play for 20 minutes and his feet would go numb. He didn't have his touch. He was struggling. It, it was really hard. And if he rested for five minutes, his batteries were recharged and he could play again. And he just didn't know what to do and there wasn't really a diagnosis. So this therapist asked if I could help. I said, sure, bring him on over. So we brought him in that next day and I saw him. And um, in talking to him and in examining him, you know, of course his exam was perfect. He's a professional athlete. I find nothing wrong. But the story is what gets you. And it sounded like he's having some exertional compartment syndrome. And so I wanted to have him get some testing for that exertionally. And so John Corey, who's in a different practice, but I know him and have worked with him for my whole career, does a nice job. Um, I wanted to get John's specific perspective as a soccer aficionado guru, and yeah. guru, yeah. And he knows he, he's really good with soccer feet and he does exertional compartment testing and it was what we needed that was best for this athlete. So I talked to John and, and that's the other nice thing to have this collaborative network where you can at the drop of a hat, call, text, whatever, and get the job done. Like we can get it done right away uh, for these folks. So John got him in and is doing this in exertional compartment testing to make sure not only is this the right diagnosis and are we correct in figuring this problem out, but then also coming up with the proper treatment so that he can get back to playing his sport and just love it without having to stop every 20 minutes. So that, that's another example of how you, we can collaborate outside of the practice. And um, whether it's through a therapist to a, a sports doctor to a foot and ankle surgeon and back to another therapist and then back to another state and back with his trainers and everybody working together. Well, and I think, again, that speaks to what Becca's true vision was when she said, I'm ready to run a sports medicine conference. And it was truly about that level of collaboration. And, and if you look at the lineup of speakers from 2022, which is still available on demand for anybody that wants to purchase that, not to you know put too much of a promo <laughs> out there, uh, but it's still available. And, and you'll see that and you'll hear that resounding theme of what it really takes to ensure that the athlete is at the center of the care has to be and so mad props to becca for that and the the, the lineup of speakers that, she, that we had in 2022 and the incredible lineup of speakers we have in coming in 2023 and you're going to hear that resounding theme again because like dr peterson just said it has to be the athlete has to be at that center of that care and all egos are removed because at this point all that matters is getting that athlete back on the field and helping them get to the right place is the most important thing yep well, and I know what I've noticed throughout my career and what I often say to people is if you walk into a room with a surgeon, with a sports medicine physician, a physical therapist, an athletic trainer, and they're honest with you and they say, I'm not the right person for this, but let me tell you who is, then that is when you know you're with the right person, in my opinion. If you get into a room and that person looks at you, they think they might know what's going on, but they don't feel like they're the expert in that. And then they lead you to the expert. That's when you're in the best hands. And that's literally what you're talking about. You sent a patient kind of out of your own network, so to yeah. speak, 
but within people that you trusted and other experts. And that's how, like, I would recommend any athlete come see you because of just how you handled that case. And, and we have to, all of us, we have to be professional, just like, like this particular athlete is, is a pro with what he does. We, that's what we're looking to do as well. We're trying to provide the best care we know how. And it can't be about ego. It can't be about money. The, mo- the moment we've done that, we've totally failed. Yep. So during our show prep, you, you started to talk about a case that really got my attention because there's a lot of literature. And for those of our avid podcast listening fans, we've talked about this literature specific to UCL injuries. And Dr. Meister talked about that at the huddle in 2022. Gosh, I'm doing lots of like throwback drops. You're quite like, the, man, this is coming out of today. nowhere right now. Uh, but I think it's. It, I want to really hear you talk about the UCL case and and your thought process of how you go through the options when a, a thrower of like you mentioned in show prep, any age, yep. any level comes through with some UCL damage what your treatment options are and what that looks like compared to the most traditional route, which is Tommy John surgery. Yeah. And so, and again, when, when we're considering all of these options, the age of the patient does come into play. So usually if, if it's somebody who still has open growth plates, um, it's not going to be Tommy John. It's going to be usually going to evulse that, that bone off rather than tearing the ligament because they're, they're made with that crumple zone. Uh, and so that might take some screws or something, but, but, that could be the end of that young pitcher's career. That's a whole other topic as far as how do we how do we keep young pitch, pitchers uh, from from damaging themselves by over over um, overplaying, overuse, uh, and early early team specialization, year round play, all of that. And because that also then leads into high school and college players having problems and professionals having problems. All of that just adds up into it. But as far as this particular case, this was one where it's a it's a college. He's a he's a college pitcher. And Dr. Friedberg had seen him first, and he did have an injury. So he felt a little bit of a pop, had some difficulty with, with, uh, with throwing, had to stop. And on the MRI, he had a distal, which is more favorable as far as the recovery potential non-surgically. So it was a distal end of his UCL partial injury. And in this circumstance, you can stop, rest, rehab, uh, and see how you do. Uh, you can do a reconstruction, say, hey, this is a damaged ligament. It's not going to do the trick. We can do a Tommy John. Or in some cases, they just sort of, what, what you could say, throw till you blow. You know, just, just keep on at it because it's, you, you're just ignoring it and you want to do it. And you, and you realize you're going to have a Tommy John, so let's just finish the season out. And if I blow it out, whatever, I'll, I'll do that and then have a Tommy John. So those are some of the different options. And so Dr. Friedberg saw him initially and said, hey, we could, we could do a reconstruction, but this is one that is in a favorable position for, for more conservative treatment if you'd like to pursue that. And they were interested, so Doug sent him over to see me, and I talked to him about some of the different options, some of which are orthobiologics. So we're talking about PRP, amnion allograft, stem cell injection, and these types of things. Uh, he and his family were, were most interested in the bone marrow aspirate um, stem cell injection. So we, we talked about the pros and cons and what we would do. Uh, did the procedure where I did a bone marrow biopsy, removed removed that fluid, spun it down, and concentrated it down so it's just about four milliliters of just concentrated stem cells, and um, and then ultrasound guided, put it right into the spot that we could see on the MRI that correlated with the ultrasound, put it right in that distal spot. Then I then we just kind of let it rest for about a month, just sit on him, let him let him incubate. Then after that, we get him doing physical therapy, and he advances with that into plyometrics, 
with his shoulder, with his, with his elbow. And also with PT, we want to focus on what got him there. So if there's anywhere along his kinetic chain where he's got some troubles, if he's a little bit tight with internal rotation, if he's, you know, contralateral hip issues, or if he's, if he's a little weak in the rotator cuff, we've got to, or with the core, we've, we've got to, or his glutes are a little weak. We need to figure out these deficits and retrain all of that because they sometimes get into trouble distally, like with the elbow in order to make up with a weak link in the chain. So focusing on all of these things to restore as best we can, his proper and excellent function to protect the elbow and also help him as he progress, progresses. So we do about a month of therapy and then a month of a throwing program. And sometimes they need a little bit more time so we can be flexible. But other times we can turn them around in about three months in this way. And that's, that's what this one's looking to do. So, I mean, I think that's just fantastic because anytime in, in the therapy world you hear UCL injury, you're like, uh-oh, there's the next, you know, nine to 18 months, depending yeah. on the level and, and, and all those things. And so again, for our listeners, I want you to really think about who's in your network of providers and who can you go to when you suspect that a thrower has a UCL injury and, and knowing that, and again, I don't want us to go down the route of the diagnostics, but the network of knowing what the image said and, and, and helping your athlete get to the right care and, and navigating that umbrella to find people that have those as options. And, and that doesn't mean that the conservative route that Dr. Peterson just talked about is going to be the option, but at least it's something that you can arm them with information so that they're a, a savvy consumer finding a specialist and then a team who can say, well, here's all your options. Here's what we think the best option is. Does this work for you? Yeah. And, and basically try to empower them to make choices that are best for their life and, and teach them what we know, but empower them. And, uh, and try to get through it. And then the other the other plug I'd throw out there is, I, I keep getting back to the youth sports, but any anytime I get a chance to shout off the rooftops, I would I would recommend to younger athletes before they get to this position to make sure that they're taking a season off every year from from a throwing sport. That doesn't mean they have to sit and play video games. They could they could play basketball as a as a or or whatever you know another another sport. But to give that that. Uh, that arm or that elbow arrest, you know? So those, I think those are important concepts to take a season off to play more than one sport. Those are helpful. Yep. And I, I mean, we've talked about that previously. MLB pitch smart guidelines is, you know, little league of America follows that. That is the tried and true rule of taking that off of no throwing for three to four months. Yep. You know, Dr. Wazowski talked about that in our podcast as well. He got that in there. We know that Brett Fisher is, big on this. I don't think you're going to find a lot of people in our network of, of, of sports medicine providers that don't wholeheartedly agree with that. It's just making sure that that message gets to everybody that w- is willing to hear that message. Yep. <laughs> we, and, and we need to repeat it because uh, unfortunately it's not always being heard. Right. But I agree with you. Everyone at our level of discussion, meaning, meaning those who care for these injuries, we all have the same opinion. Yep. Yep. How important is the education piece to you for your athletes? So regardless of it's a 12-year-old that comes in with their parents or a 22-year-old professional uh, baseball player, let's say, how important is it to you to make sure that they leave feeling like they're fully educated in all their options? That's a great question. And I would say in some ways I'm a little weird that way. I I sort of get into that. So I I like taking the time. And explaining things and discussing things, giving the options, helping them make decisions. I, I find my job to be educating them, empowering them. I also have a job to make recommendations, but my job is not to be the boss of them. You know, I, I, I make recommendations, but if they choose something that's a little different than what I'm recommending, but it's still within the realm of reasonable choices, 
then I accept and I understand that, then I, then I help them accomplish their goals through that means. And if it doesn't work, then we change and we do something else. And so I, I think that education process is really important up front, but also ongoing. And, and when there's questions, we address them. And, and so I always, you know, at the end of every visit, I, and even if they've asked 20 questions, I'll always end it with, so do you have any other questions? And, and I think it's important for us to listen to, to our athletes and listen to our patients and make sure that we're, that we're bringing them, we're lifting them, that we're helping them get to where they need to be. Yeah, obviously, I think that's super important, too. And I think it's important for our listeners to remember that it's, you know, if you're doing or you get a patient that you haven't seen the procedure that's done, that's why communication between the professionals is also so so important. Because if you're doing a procedure on a UCL that I've never seen before and I'm too afraid to ask you, <laughs> what is that supposed to look like or what does the rehab process look like? Yeah. Once again, we've lost the patient in that. So the education is really important for the patient, but it's also important for the other sports medicine professionals to either learn, ask you, or um, come to you know events where you kind of hear about the latest care that's going on, regardless of profession, because I think ultimately it's how we get better. Even how you mentioned, you know, just because somebody has an elbow injury, you want a therapist, and we hope that they're all doing that, looking at the whole kinetic chain, because yeah. we all know it's not just the elbow, what caused that issue. And, and to harken back on some of these ideas, and it's not one, one directional, this education. You know, I think back to when I was in fellowship, um, the, the clinic, the sports clinic where I was, was touching the, the, the physical therapy, the sports therapy site. And we went back and forth all the time. And a lot of these things that I've learned and have integrated into my practice, I learned from the physical therapists and trainers that I worked with. So I, and, and as far as throwing programs and other things that I don't necessarily learn naturally in medical school or in residency or in fellowship, I've learned it from those that are the teachers of it. So I, it definitely goes in every direction, and I've got a lot to learn as well. And I learn things from patients too. Like I, I, I even, you know, I'll say this type of things to patients, whether they're a high school or college athlete or professional, but uh, I'll say, you know more about your sport as a gymnast, you know, you know more about what you do in your body than I do. So I need to hear from you and understand from you how, how we can get you progressing back to your sport. Like if they, if they need to understand how do I return to my sport after I'm well from my injury, I need to learn from them. What are your expectations? What do you do? What does your coach make you do? What? I have to learn that. So I, I, use, I refer to them as well. And so the, the learning comes from the patient, from the therapist, from the trainer, from me, from everybody. Thank you for that discussion. I want to go back to something that Be Becca talked about, which was talking about some latest and greatest things. And yeah. again, in our show prep, and, and as you gave us a, a very thorough list of options of things that you were super excited to talk about on the podcast, one of those was a new uh, minimally invasive procedure that you're doing for both carpal tunnel and, 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 and trigger finger. So can you talk through really what that is and signs and symptoms for us as therapists to look for when to send? Is there, a, is there a too early or a too late where this doesn't work? And, you know, kind of talk about that for, for our listeners as they're, again, and, and the stats that you shared about the number of carpal tunnel, you know, need out there versus what's reality, just so our therapists are aware of some of the newest and, and, and latest and greatest things that are out there. Absolutely. Thank you. So we'll, we'll start with carpal tunnel. So for example, there are over 2 million cases in the U.S. per year that could be treated and only about 560,000 that are done per year. And you ask yourself, why is that? And it has to do, because that's a big discrepancy of people just living with it. There's a lump in it and, and dealing with carpal tunnel. That's, that's unfortunate. I even had a patient that I saw last week that was referred to me by, by an outside physician that knows that I do this. 
and he crashed his motorcycle and tore his rotator cuff because of his carpal tunnel that he was dealing with for so long because his because his fingers were getting numb from the vibrations and he couldn't couldn't feel everything very well and crashed so bummer yeah. So, uh, so the reasons it's split into thirds, the reasons why people don't go through with it, it has to do with fear of surgery, um, costs and, and time off, you know, some, some of these types of things, fear of surgery and complications and risks and all of that. And so those are the reasons that keep people from access to it. So the, this procedure, it's, it's, uh, this carpal tunnel release system, it's, it's called the ultra glide CTR. It's made by the Sonex S O N E X company. Uh, and uh, it's basically a, a revolutionary treatment. I, call, I say revolutionary because it's like a whole different way of doing something. It's very new, very different. It's been out for about a year. And, uh, and this fits within my wheelhouse. It's an ultrasound-guided, minimally invasive procedure versus the more traditional procedures that hand surgeons do that are awesome, that work great, that are they're wonderful. So there, it's not that this is now the only choice. You have many choices. It's another choice. You know, the, the traditional options being an open or a mini open or an endoscopic uh, carpal tunnel release, those definitely work. And those are in the best trained hands as a hand surgeon. I mean, the, they, they can handle everything. You know, when it comes to hand and wrist, they're amazing. And so... No pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so... But they don't necessarily have training in ultrasound guided procedures and don't have the facility, you know, don't, don't, don't have the comfort levels with doing that versus me. That's my wheelhouse. And so that's where there's some overlap where, where we can both do the same procedure. I do it from my direction. They do it from their pr pr uh, direction. And what we need to figure out if, if we're being, if we're being true to our calling as, as trying to be a healer is we need to figure out what's best for this patient. And for some, it is going to be the open version. And for others, it's going to be this new version. And so I... Uh, this patient I saw recently, actually, I wanted to do his procedure, and he really wanted it. But then as I did the, the pre-procedural checks, I, I measured things with the ultrasound and saw that he had a bifid nerve and that it was really tight next to his hamulus. So I looked at the anatomical landmarks, and he wasn't optimal as far as being a candidate for this procedure. And I thought it would be safer to do the open version. So I referred him back and said, you should go see this surgeon in, in, your, in your system. And so that was one, you know, you, you want to be able to help people. You want to be able to do these cool things. And he was a little bit disappointed, but he was also grateful and happy and felt like he was making the best decision for himself. And I do think it was the best for him. Uh, most of the, that, that's pretty rare when someone has a little bit aberrant, aberrant ab, uh, uh, or different, different normal anatomy. Right. Most of the time people are pretty straightforward, but that's why we check so we don't get surprised. So the cool thing about this procedure is again, it's ultrasound guided. So I don't have to cut all along the skin. I don't have to cut through the fashion. I don't have to cut through everything until I get down to the nerve and then sew it all back up on the way out. This way I make one poke. It's about four to five millimeters proximal to the carpal tunnel. I'm doing it ultrasound guided. I first numb them up with local. So it's not even done with general anesthesia. It's not done with an anesthesiologist or any of that. They can eat breakfast that morning. I do it at the procedure room here in the office and I just numb them up with a little poke and a burn uh, and then make the 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 poke, so to speak, with the scalpel, but not a big incision. So when we're finished, there's no, there's no suit, there's no suturing. It's just steri-strips and they heal up great. And then I put this device in, uh, it's sort of a long wand looking device and it has water filled balloons on either side. And I, I tell people, these are like the bumpers of a bowling alley, you know, no gutters, no gutter <laughs> balls. That's a, that's the best way to bowl, you know? And, um, and so when you fill up the balloons, once you're in their proper position, one of them pushes the median nerve out of the way. The other pushes the ulnar, ulnar artery out of the way. 
So no whammies. You're not going to hit those important structures. That's one of the biggest concerns and risks. So I'm keeping it safe by watching at all times all of the anatomy instead of just what I can see with my eyes. I'm looking with the ultrasound at all times, different planes, and I can move back and forth and toggle around and really keep an eye on everything. And I've scoped it out beforehand to make sure they have the proper anatomy for the procedure. And then I have these balloons that keep it safe. Then there's a small little blade that, that comes up. Uh, in between the balloons and I pull it back and all it cuts is the ligament so it opens the top of the box of the carpal tunnel so now it makes the room and I didn't cut anything else and then it recedes back into the device and we're done I lower the balloons take it out I check with the probe that we did and I prove it and I document that on the ultrasound that we did cut the ligament and open up that carpal tunnel and um, the, the 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 neat thing about this procedure is not only do we not have general anesthesia or, and, uh, and all of those additional expenses and risks, but uh, the, the, and the risks of wounds and infections and all that, although that's small, but it's, it's smaller now. Right. The other thing is the recovery. This is, this is where it's revolutionary and remarkable. The average recovery of getting back to work, say, for, for name a job. I mean, I've had welders, linemen, heavy equipment operators, clerical folks, physicians, surgeons, uh, lots of different lines of, of work, and on average, they get back in in uh, in four days instead of four weeks or six weeks. They get back in four days. And the wildest one I've seen, I saw a gentleman that came back. I saw him back about a week ago, postoperatively. I usually see him about a week out. And this this I can't promise because this was unusual. <laughs> but he literally he said, "What what can I do?" I said, "Well, pretty much what you feel up to on average is about four days. But if you feel up to something, you can try it." And he goes, "Okay." I saw him back, I asked him how it went, he said, oh, great, I played around to golf the next day. I'm like, he, yeah, what? So he felt so well that he played, he, like he, his, his tingling that wakes him up every night a few times and, and the pain and he has to shake his hands out, that was gone, he slept the night, he felt great, felt like a champ. He gets up and he goes golfing, played around and was fine. And, and people will have a little bit of bruising, a little bit of soreness, a little bit of swelling that might be there for a week or two, but the symptoms are gone in most cases. And in his case, he was playing golf a day oh, later. That's you know, it, it's just sort of <laughs> ridiculous. And, and that's, that's why I call it revolutionary, because you can achieve these remarkable results and get people going right away. And in his case, it was fun. There was, there was another case where this, this gentleman had had it for 25 years, and he has a partially quadriplegic daughter who had a, a car accident when she was 16, and now she's in her 50s. And he takes care of her. He's, he's her primary caregiver, and he, he couldn't... Take, he couldn't stop. And that's why he couldn't take four to six weeks off. And that's why he never had carpal tunnel release. And he had atrophy of his hand, dense numbness. It had gotten so bad that he even would get burned and he hit himself with a grinder, didn't know it. So he ended up at one point injuring the tip of that finger and having, having troubles, having to lose the tip of his finger because he couldn't feel it and was hurting himself. Right. When he heard about this procedure, uh, he was so excited he did it. He was back to caring for his daughter in two days. And that's the difference between not being able to have the procedure versus not skipping a beat. And so it opens the door up for people who, who can't do the other one because of their lives or who are concerned about the surgical side of it or, or whatever of the other blockades. This removes some blockades. And for some people, it's perfect and it's ideal and it's wonderful. And for others, it's not their best choice, either because of, um, of anatomical considerations or because they want a hand surgeon or to do it the traditional way, whatever the reason might be or, be, or perhaps in some cases the expense for that particular individual could be less doing it the tradi traditional way. Right. You know, the device is, uh, is not, at this point anyway, covered by insurance and costs about $1,000. 
they save that usually. Usually it ends up being a washer cheaper this way because people usually have to pay for you know, the copays and the deductibles and things related to the OR. So you erase those, but then you have to pay for the device. Um, and for some people, they just can't or don't want right. to do that. Then that's not the right procedure for them. And that's okay. And, and we can get them to, to the hand surgeon to have it done. So that, that, that's an example of, of we need to find what's right for the patient. But those that have chosen to do this have been universally pretty happy with it. That's phenomenal. And I yeah, like awesome. visualizing the anatomy as you're talking through it in my head. And it's been a long time since <laughs> I've stood the hand. <laughs> and m my colleagues will know that I'm going to say this, but y there's a lot of people who might not want me treating the hand based on my board certified <laughs> test results. But hey, you know what? Everything else I'm good at, so they, that that's okay. But um, let's go to let's go to the trigger finger. Yeah, so trigger I'm finger. really fascinated by by that because it's something that you watch people in everyday life, and all yep. of a sudden they'll just like pop their finger back, and you're like, oh, you have a trigger finger. They're yeah, stuck. it's been there for a long time. There's what do I want to do about that? Another thing that people live with, you know, for a long time, and we still treat things conservatively. You know, we we try an injection, we try this, we try that. If it's not working, okay, here's your options. And you can have anesthesia and have surgery and have sutures and all of that, and no problem. It works great. Um, or we can do this new procedure where there's, once again, a little, a little jab, you know, a little poke, uh, no sutures. And then I have this device that slides in parallel with the, with the tendon sheath and goes under that A1 pulley. And then I flip the blade so that the, the sharp side's up, and then I pull it back, and it cuts it. And, it's, and I'm watching with ultrasound the entire time. All I'm doing is cutting that A1 pulley. I'm nowhere near the arteries or the nerves and we can watch it live the whole time under ultrasound guidance, and it, it works beautifully. It works great. And, um, and people will have a little bit of soreness, a little bit of swelling sometimes, but the triggering's gone immediately. And, uh, and I've seen great results with it. And the, little, and the incision, instead of this longer sort of vertical incision, they have this small little horizontal incision in the crease of their hand, and it's, it's nothing. You know, I saw one back today, and uh, the triggering's gone, and the, the scar is completely healed up. He had it about a month ago, but, but he's... Uh, it's it, it's it's a nothing, you know, as far as as far as the morbidity and all of that, and and it is a pretty slick procedure, and this one's even safer because there are as long as you stay midline, which is easy to do, you're sitting on top of the tendon, it's it's very straightforward, and we just cut that pulley and you move on, and and they they drive themselves here, they have the procedure, you know, 15 20 minutes later they drive home, and they didn't have to have anesthesia or or any of that stuff, so it's pretty cool. That's pretty remarkable as well i mean just all the the logistics that go into when you're going to have anesthesia yep that that are that, again going back to your berries uh, related to carpal tunnel that's another barrier it's like is there somebody that's going to be able to take me and get me home and yep. do they have to miss work what are we gonna do about our kids and all that stuff versus this is wham bam thank you man and, and we're done and some people have comorbidities where you know, they've got heart disease or diabetes or have had strokes or whatever else it may be that makes it a real challenge for them to be cleared for surgery. And in this setting, sometimes they have no other choice. And, and this is nice that they have a choice. Right. Yep. Just another reminder as rehab professionals, as Dan has mentioned, like to have a good network in order to, if you're seeing somebody in office and they're just not getting better and you're like, okay, now who can I send to, to have that network that so that as the rehab professional, you're providing options when you send out if it ends up, you know, needing to go to a physician so that, you know, you look like kind of a champion being like, hey, I, I know a few people that can help you in a few different ways, which is really important for your patients. Yep. Absolutely. That communication, that network, that net that we all create together and knowing each other from different 
practices and groups and specialties working all together. That's when, when we truly win and we, when our patients win. Um, a lot of times, you know, these types of things, these newer things that we're mentioning, people don't know about it, you know, right. and, and the reason they're not getting it is because they don't know where to find it. They never heard of it. And so the more people are aware, the more they understand they do have choices. Yep. Well, Dr. Peterson, thank you very much for sharing some insight on some of the interesting cases over uh, the past couple months you've been seeing, as well as the fantastic information for the new procedures on the carpal tunnel and the trigger finger. Um, we thank you for your time. As always, please do not hesitate to reach out to us with any questions, comments, feedback, or suggested speakers that you want to see join us. Also, do not forget to join us in Phoenix, Arizona at the Huddle, March 10th and 11th, 2023. And thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 